Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Yes, we're going to talk about liquefied natural gas now because we've got a pioneer when it comes to the energy industry. My guest is Sharif Tsuki. He is the co-founder and the chairman of Tellurian, and he is the founder, former well, founder and former chief executive of Chenier. And Sharif joins us in our studio here in uh, at eleven three zero. Great to have you with us, sir. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. Uh, you, you're the only trailblazing energy uh, pioneer that I can think of that is also uh, run a chain of restaurants uh, and managed to have a Hollywood um, the film colorization uh, company already in, in your past. Maybe just give people a little uh, snippet of, of how you came to create Chenier and the world of liquefied natural gas. Well, I guess it's a lesson in always keeping your options open and learning as much as you can as you go along. So you never know what's going to prepare you for what. But I think in the mid-90s, I was looking for a niche uh, to invest in and to raise money, which is the skill that I had, uh, into a sector that would be changed by technology. That's how I ended up, ended up being in the energy business. And slowly I learned. And uh, Chenier was founded in 1996. And... Um, I had a 20-year run there until 2015. And then, uh, Sharif, you left Chenier last year after uh, Carl Icahn uh, had some issues with uh, the company, and now you've started this new venture, Tellurian. Uh, tell us about that. What are, you, what, are you, what are you trying to do with Tellurian? Well, I think the major disagreement with Carl at the time was simply whether you would pay dividends out or whether you reinvest the money to continue the growth of the company. So I had the view that uh, the market has just been started and that uh, although it didn't look so good for a couple of years, it would come back and uh, that we needed to continue to grow the company. Carl had a different opinion, and uh, we agreed to separate, uh, to, to go our separate ways. So, so Tellurian. So when they freed me, I had the opportunity to create uh, Tellurian in February of 2016, about three months after I was fired from Chenier. And to pick up where the things that uh, Chenier did not want to pursue at the time. Uh, so we founded a company, found another site that took a team that uh, we were funding at Chenier, but that Chenier decided to discontinue the funding, uh, led by Martin Houston. And Martin has become my partner. We founded Tulurian together, and um, we identified a good site, took our old team back, have brought uh, Bechtel and GE to, con to collaborate with us again, and developed a pretty good site. Uh, For a plant. For a big processing for a, plant. For a big processing plant, a big liquefaction yeah. facility in Louisiana with the capacity to export 26 million tons, which is really replicating the success that I had at Chenier with a 24 million ton plant at Sabine Pass. Can you speak a little bit about the supply and demand that currently exists in natural gas? Because to turn it into liquefied natural gas requires this major investment and process. Uh, and then there is not really a global pricing uh, platform for, for natural gas, is there? I mean, it costs different things in different countries. You're exactly right. Uh, 
so there's a number of things that happened that are different from when I started the effort at Chinia. The first thing is that it has become very clear that the United States is the low-cost producer of natural gas, and at the same time, the low-cost manufacturer of liquefaction facilities. So we have a cost advantage compared to the rest of the countries in the world. The second very important thing that has happened is that the natural gas business on a global basis is increasingly becoming a very liquid market, thanks in great part to liquefied natural gas. So we, the advent of Australia first and now the United States as two major new players into the LNG business, you now have 12 cargoes per day available for sale on a global basis with about 40 BCF a day. And, and by BCF, you got to tell people, the British thermal units? No, no I beg your billion pardon. cubic feet. Billion cubic feet. See, that's why we needed you. So to, to put it in perspective, um, the... In two years, when all the liquefaction facilities under construction currently will come on the market, the market will be able to produce 50 BCF, 50 billion cubic feet of natural gas every day. The entire consumption of the United States is about 75 billion cubic feet. So two-thirds of the market on a global basis that is on the water at any given time, It's two thirds of the size of the American market. It is larger than the European market. So it's a very, very significant floating market uh, that is extremely flexible in terms of what direction it can go into because those are large ships and there's probably 220 of those today. And in two years, there'll be 250 loaded with liquefied natural gas that can basically go to wherever they need it. And Sharif, just in our last minute or so here, uh, where do you see uh, prices for uh, natural gas and, and, and liquid natural gas over the next five to 10 years? Well, in the United States, I don't see anything different than what we have today. So somewhere between 250 and $3 in MMBTU. On a global basis, the, the excess inventory is being absorbed very, very, very quickly because low prices generate new demand. So demand year on year for liquefied natural gas is up 11%. And on that basis, we're gonna have a very, very tight system by 2020. So I I see higher prices for global prices very quickly. Higher prices for global prices. Thank you very much for joining us. A pleasure. I look forward to having you again because we didn't even get into the whole uh, kind of history of how the liquefied natural gas came about and also some of the challenges that you, that you faced. Much appreciated uh, for joining us. Sharif Tuki, he is the uh, co-founder and chairman of Tellurian. Thank you very much. Our topic is the world of retail, and joining us is Bert Flickinger. He is Managing Director, Strategic Resource Group, and he can be followed on Twitter at Bert underscore Flickinger. Bert, great to have you with us here in the studio. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Peter Barnes is uh, in our Bloomberg 1061 uh, studio in Boston, and uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the geographical issues that are facing retail, because I was reading that uh, in the uh, seaport area of Boston, for example, it's attracting, you, if you want to get retail space, you're going to end up paying top dollar for that, but a lot of other places are not so hot. Give us the, the lowdown. Uh, precisely, Pim. Uh, Southport, uh, South Street P, uh, Seaport's uh, just booming in terms of customer counts. 
They uh, got Primark from the UK, which is drawing a lot of customers. They're doing off-price, full-line department stores. Uh, Saks Fifth Avenue downtown is 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 one of the great Saks Fifth Avenue stores. And Boston is really really one of the birthplaces of retail. Ben Camerata for TJX Incorporated. Uh, Merv- Are you taking me to Filene's basement too? <laughs> no, but Mer- Merv Weish to the great Chris Baldwin today at BJ's Wholesale Club. And a lot of great retailers, uh, George DeMoulis and his where, family. Where did they, all those great retailers go? Because, you know, we got the results. All right, Michael Kors, stock moves higher because they beat analyst estimates up like 25%. Ralph Lauren, the same story. But Macy's, JCPenney, Nordstrom, Kohl's, what, are, what kind of market are they facing? Tale of two cities. Nordstrom is making a lot of uncharacteristic mistakes, uh, similar to mistakes Target made in Canada. And Canada's uh, t- uh, turning around to be, be really tough for Nordstrom. Uh, J.C. Penny wins our Frank Blake Retailer of, uh, Turnaround of the Year Award. Marvin Ellison's doing a great job with Steve Sadoff, former CEO of Saks, on the board. Uh, Mike Ullman, who uh, cleaned up the company when Bill Ackman and Steve Roth left Penny on death's doorstep. Penny's got great apparel, great price points, 5 7 $9.00. Co-exclusive with Disney, Nike's coming in, Adidas. But Sephora's the real story at JCPenney. When we were at Paris, Sephora attracts more cust- as many cust- uh, consumers as the Eiffel Tower. And the Eiffel Tower's open more hours per day than Sephora's because they can't control the Sephora cl- crowds on Champs-Élysées. Sephora Cosmetics, right? Sephora the- Cosmetics. Okay. Over 6 million customers a year, Sephora, Champs-Élysées. Uh, Macy's is doing a lot of exciting things. So we're we're seeing this accelerating retail ice age uh, consolidation where uh, Barney's, uh, Neiman Marcus, Bergdorf uh, could file for bankruptcy, Bonton Group. Macy, uh, with its Bloomingdale's company, Net Consolidators, as will be Nordstrom, as will be Hudson Bay Sachs. So uh, while a tougher time now, as you said, earnings up, uh, sales soft. We see that bouncing back, but they really have to do what Sephora is doing so well in the UK. When we were talking to one of their co-directors, what Sephora and Harvey Nichols are doing in London in terms of digital, special, exciting events, uh, to your present point uh, before going on air, making clothes that people want to buy, great styles, great fabric, uh, great fit. The leaders are really in London and, and people need to see that. And as you referenced, uh, they're really, ex- really exciting uh, development with young designers, too. But, Bert, uh, if I'm a retail investor or even an institutional investor, should I just sit on the sidelines for now and wait until these, these big, uh, big name companies like Macy's and Penny's and Nordstrom's get their act together? Peter, you're completely correct. Sit on the sidelines until after uh, holiday 17. The bankruptcies will start when they have to pay their bills, uh, when the vendors don't fill up Tin Cup and Tin Cup Week in February of 18. And then uh, Macy's and a number of the others, uh, Nordstrom, Hudson Bay Sachs, will be the real winners. And that's probably the time to invest off off price anytime's a good good time, uh, uh, particularly with uh, TJX. Well, I was yeah, going to well, ch- well. Go ahead, Peter. I well, I was also going to ask about you know any specialty retailers that you like. You know, and I'm thinking about the f- the Foot Lockers of the world or the Bed Baths and Beyonds. Uh, how are they survive? How are they doing? Are, are they okay? And are, are they safe places for investors these days? They're okay, but it really depends on uh, World World Cup and big athletic events. 
In off-price, what we really like, there was an article in Barron's this weekend that the debt on BJ's is trading at 9 and uh, 5 eighths percent. Dynamic new leader in uh, Chris Baldwin and uh, uh, BJ's in the entire southeast and northeastern seaboard of the U.S. is really doing well in saving customers money, both uh, individual as well as inst- institutional or commercial customers. Well, since you mentioned wholesale uh, clubs, I got to ask you about Costco because, I mean, that is the, you know, that's the leader, right? Costco's the leader. Uh, lost Jeff Brotman, who was even better than Sam Walton in terms of. Everything Jeff Brotman and his dad did was a winner. They betted a thousand in retail, saved families at Costco, uh, five six thousand a year during the supermarket strike. Uh, the last decade, uh, Brotman would let about ten, eight to ten Latino families, uh, when we were in the market, sign up on one Costco membership card. They couldn't shop in the neighborhood supermarkets. Costco has has stores uh, that do. Up to five, six million a week, highest volume stores anywhere outside our pack and save client in, in New Zealand. And uh, uh, Costco can beat anybody in anything. And my former Procter & Gamble teammate, Mike Parrott, doing a great job as their chief merchant. Hey, Bert, let's finish up, though, on, on the, with the online uh, retailers. You know, where do these companies hide in the face of competition from Amazon? I mean, can they survive? Uh, even the co- – well – Costco has its special niche, obviously, but what about the rest of these retailers? How, how do they how do they compete against the Amazons of the world? I'm gonna I'm gonna channel Peter to Macy's credit. They moved from the 20th largest online retailer, Macy's.com, is now ranked number seven in retail. Richard Baker and his team at Hudson Bay uh, bought Gilt in off price uh, for Saks Fifth Avenue, and Saks has off Fifth. So a combination of bricks and clicks with Omnichannel's a uh, great way to survive. But you're you're right. There's going to be Darwinian destruction for the people that don't do it. Ouch! Ouch! Darwinian destruction. You know, everyone. <laughs> let, let me just focus on Walmart. I know we did. You know, we talked a little bit of Amazon. Walmart is serious about online, right? Very serious. Stock is up eight eight for Walmart. Stock is up eighteen percent so far this year. They pay a two and a half percent dividend, and they're not going quietly into the night. Not going quietly, and it might be a Peter Barnes uh, good good investment for uh, now and eighteen. Doug McMillan. Handpicked from Mr. Sam Walton out of uh, Jonesboro, Arkansas. Uh, one of the first person in 17 years, Pim and Peter. Top merchant, top store operator, completely turning the company around. What? And, and Walmart had a lot of nepotism with uh, Sam Walton's son, Rob, and brother-in-law running .com. Now they have professionals running it, and Walmart will win on land and online. All right. well, I got to tell you, I, th- I think sometimes my wife is single-handedly helping to keep TJ Maxx and Walmart <laughs> up there because she's at those places all the time. <laughs> well, your wife is as smart as her summer interns who could buy anywhere, and they find the best fashions for, for $10. This is your great producer, does uh, Sam Langa, uh, best bargains, best prices, Peter. Thanks very much. Bert Flickinger is Managing Director, Strategic Resource Group. And I want to thank, of course, uh, Peter Barnes, my guest host today. Let's turn our attention now to yield. How do you get yield in a yield-starved environment? For example, the 30-year right now pays 2.79%. The 10-year pays, well, it doesn't pay very much more. It pays uh, 2.21%. And 
for people that are looking for yield, where are they going to go? Well, maybe they're going to stop in Joel Beam's office. He is Managing Director, Senior Portfolio Manager at Salient. And the topic is Real Estate Investment Trust. Joel, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, give us the lay of the land when it comes to Real Estate Investment Trust, because we know that the income gets passed through untaxed to the recipient, and the recipient pays the tax. Uh, but there are a wide variety of REITs out there. Give us some some understanding. Indeed, it's a trillion dollar market cap, and the the property exposure that's possible to access through this marketplace is quite diverse, and it really reflects the Main Street property market. So there are shopping centers, uh, office buildings, warehouses, uh, specialty um, REITs, like things that own like prisons, for instance. I mean, there's all manner of commercial property available in that trillion dollar market. What What do you specialize in or what, what are you recommending that people pay attention to currently? We pay attention to the main food groups. So, you know, it's largely it's, it's uh, uh, industrial property, office property, um, retail, hotels. So fairly standard fare um, for us. And I think right now there's there's you know, actually, there's quite a lot of dispersion that's come back into our market. I mean, the, the, the prices have generally been a little bit homogenous over the last few years. And this year, particularly with the retail sector, you see getting knocked out of bed. It's um, It's been a really interesting opportunity to pick up some stock. And Joel, uh, Peter here in Boston, you do write in uh, your most recent research note, though, that um, people have to be really careful about the, you know, chasing yield here. Uh, you have to be kind of selective. Uh, can you expand on that? And, and, and so what what is the risk right now in the REIT space? Well, there's always risk. Um, this is nothing is riskless, and um, you know our our sector, you know, certainly has some yieldy stocks that trade at lower multiples, and you know, um, you know, have a greater opportunity to get more of your return in current yield and less in growth. And if you um, uh, aren't careful, you know, sometimes you can get exposed to companies that might have a dividend cut. Maybe they're overpaying. So you, you know, we all want yield, but remember, you can't. We can't give you, and you can't find what the earth doesn't provide. And we are in a low yield environment across the investment landscape. So one must always be careful. And um, you know, that's my short advice on that. Yeah, and as with metals, which, which we were just talking about in the last uh, segment, um, your space is very interest rate sensitive, and and we have the Fed. Uh, poised yet again to raise interest rates uh, potentially by the end of the year. Uh, how does that play into all this? Well, long-term real estate shouldn't and, and doesn't really correlate with rate changes, except that right now, you know, we're living in an extraordinary time where the entire investment landscape seems to be priced at a, at a premium. So as the overall return landscape moves, and that's primarily risk-free rates, right, um, there are certain sectors that might be susceptible to it from a you know, from a buying and selling in the market's everyday point of view. Long term, um, you know, a bond can't raise the rent um, like we can, say, on a commercial property that we own. So so there isn't correlation over the long term, but it's extremely important right now where it seems well established that many things are expensive. It's important to have a strategy. Um, you know, I, I think the passive fad in today's environment is way long in the tooth. Can you speak about one particular REIT, Joel, uh, Chatham Lodging Trust? Uh, they're based in Palm Beach, uh, Florida, and I think that they kind of quality. I mean, I know they're in your fund, mm -hmm. uh, but they are a REIT that's focused on the hospitality industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, we think it's a great company. It's been a little bit choppy, you know, performance-wise, but the business is plodding along. In our, in our strategies, we try to have our common stock hotel investments with limited service hotels because the margins are better. 
Um, so, you know, really great brands like like Marriott Residence Inn and Hilton Garden Inn, you know, really nice margins, great business. And in our um, our, our more credit oriented investments we like we like more full service hotels like we have a, a, a big investment in Ashford Hospitality Prime that you probably saw just to quickly uh, just to lay that the uh, the dividend the yield on uh, on Chatham the lodging trust symbol is CLDT six and a half percent right now Peter uh, and, uh, Joel you are looking at harvesting some gains here are you not Oh, we do that all the time, sir. Mm-hmm. So, so what? But, but specifically, uh, you're talking about harvesting gains in preferreds. Why? Well, I think it's as I mentioned earlier. It seems well established in the credit space, in particular, that you know valuations are elevated, and there seems to be you know really more, you know, really more downside risk than than upside opportunity for a lot of credit instruments. So, we are absolutely for years have been in block and tackle mode, sort of selling low yield where there's no more upside in the price. And we've been trying to source and buy opportunities for, you know, a fair return and some price stability and, and upside. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us uh, coming in. Very interesting. Joel Beam is the Managing Director, Senior Portfolio Manager at Salient. The topic, of course, is uh, REITs. And just to mention that uh, they manage the Salient REIT strategy. It's called the Select Income Fund. Joining us is Eric LaSalle. He is the chief economist for RBC Global Asset Management. They've got uh, a mere $300 billion under management and uh, joining us from uh, Toronto. And, you know, Eric, maybe you could give us a sort of non-U.S. perspective of how the U.S. economy looks to you and what is its uh, what are some of its strengths and some of its weaknesses at the moment? Well, thanks for having me. To, to me, it looks like it's doing pretty well. I won't say it's necessarily broken unambiguously clear of that 2% hurdle that has proven so hard to overcome over the last eight or nine years. But this is an economy running towards the top end, I think, of what we've grown used to. And you can see that demonstrated in quite a lot of measures. Granted, the hard data maybe not quite performing online with the soft data. But overall, it looks like there's been a pickup. I don't know if we can attribute all of that back to the election in November, just because there's a global element to this. And there's a, a part of it that started way back last summer. But I would say moving fairly well right now. And I should say as, as someone living to the north of the U.S., it's something that's been beneficial to Canada as well. It's helped Canada move quite nicely forward, too. Uh, but Eric, uh, Peter Barnes here, uh, a lot of the uh, rise in the equity markets uh, ha- has been attributed to the expectation that uh, the new president's agenda will get passed and will help to stimulate the economy even more, if, it, if, if that, assuming that's what it needs. But we haven't actually seen much of that agenda uh, move forward. And it looks like the markets are really kind of hanging on tax reform. What about all that? Right. Well, I think that's absolutely fair. And I'll circle around to that in a moment. But I would really make the comment at the same time that do keep in mind there are some other things at work here. Financial conditions in general are very favorable. There's a bit of a, a rubber ball bounce effect from a tough start to 2016 and so on. So there, there are other things at work. I would say that what's maybe underappreciated by the White House uh, legacy, if I can say that so far, is there does seem to be a shift in the deregulation environment. Not a lot of legislation, but a lot of executive orders. I think a change in terms of the 
the temperature in the room as well. And when I look at various measures of concern about regulation, those are already coming down. So I think there's been some progress there. There's been that big boost in confidence and don't make me try and link it back uh, coherently to some sort of policy change, but that seems to have been linked in part to the, the change of political landscape as well. And then you're absolutely right. Will we get tax cuts? Doesn't look likely this year. I'm still budgeting for something uh, in 2018, but that something has slowly been whittled down to a much less exciting something than one might have imagined in the fall of last year. So I think there might be a bit of help in 2018, but other factors are at work, and, and maybe the most important and so far undiscussed one is that perhaps a bit of that secular stagnation is fading, really just for, for chronological reasons, if nothing else. And this idea that a, a negative confidence shock was maybe one of the things that did in the global economy back in 2008, 2009, and maybe there's been a positive confidence shock, and whether it makes sense that it happened or not, it, it has happened, and that might be helping to pull us out of that secular stagnation as well. And a good and a good uh, point to pivot to the Fed uh, with, because you know, obviously, the the Fed uh, helped the helped this recovery along. Uh, uh, m- most analysts would agree, but now the Fed is trying to, you know, reduce its accommodation. What about uh, what's your outlook for Fed policy going forward for the rest of the year? Right. I wouldn't say I have an overly provocative one. It involves the assumption of probably a rate hike and probably a bit of drawdown on the bond side. So fairly in line, I would say, with where the market sits right now. But to me, the the big question, certainly as investors, is just whether or not this is the right decision, whether it's a policy error or not. And I I sit firmly in in a camp that thinks this is the right thing to do. Granted, lots of ambiguity about what neutral or natural is and where eventually this all ends. But it does certainly make sense that rates are going up. I don't get too, too concerned about the low wage story. It seems to me that this is clearly an economy getting fairly tight. And so it's, it's probably the right thing to do. And, and so far, the Fed has acted reasonably and the market seems to be judging that as well. Hey, Eric, uh, whatever camp you're in, I'm assuming that it's using Canadian lumber. To build the, the houses, right? To build the cabins. That's right. All right. I'm leading, you know where I'm leading you. I'm leading you down the NAFTA path because, you know, everyone thinks NAFTA and then, you know, unless the president pays a visit to, uh, you know, the, well, I mean, I guess I was going to say Wisconsin or uh, northern Michigan in order to uh, sort of talk about the uh, the timber trade or indeed even the the oil and energy trade from Canada. Mexico is always in the headlines. What's your view of of any possible renegotiation for, for NAFTA and making it actually better? Yeah, I mean, this is a timely subject in the sense that the official negotiations start next week, to my knowledge, and so we will learn much more shortly. We learned a, a fair chunk last month, of course, when that, that big 18-page report came out of out of the White House proposing various NAFTA changes. And so in terms of how that plays out, I'll confess I, I'm a little concerned. It's not that anyone's proposing to tear NAFTA up. It's not that giant new tariffs are being proposed for any particular area. I worry more about almost the, the foundation of NAFTA and some of the aims there, and in particular, some of the subtle changes, you know, eliminating a trade resolution panel. That's actually quite important. Right now, disputes are resolved in an impartial way. If disputes instead are resolved by national courts, you get much less predictable and maybe much less free trade-oriented outcomes. And similarly, one of the proposals in there is to allow what are called safeguard exclusions. And really what that means is if any sector is hurt by free trade, they can put tariffs on. And the basic point of free trade isn't to hurt sectors, but sectors do get hurt along the way via comparative advantage. And so I do worry 
argue that NAFTA could continue with no new tariffs, but really be substantially defanged. So consider me somewhat concerned. And of course, that's hugely relevant for both Mexico and Canada. They are number two and three in terms of global trade linkages with the U.S. right after China. So it is a big deal. And I, I think that there are some more pernicious changes proposed than maybe the surface would suggest. Yeah. And, and the president's target is this $60 billion trade deficit with Mexico. So what sectors uh, of trade between the U.S. and Mexico do you think are most at risk in all of this? I suppose the motor vehicle one is, is, is the side that gets the greatest attention, and, and indeed Mexico has been hugely successful in terms of picking up a lot of production and, and manufacturing there. To me, though, I think this will get very complicated very quickly, given the supply chain linkages and the, the, the re-importing and re-exporting of products that were made in one country and back to the other. But it really, manufacturing and, and autos being one of the flagship is the, is the obvious one there. But you, know, you do worry a little bit, though, about one of the aims that the U.S. has here, which is that this goal to, to achieve even more balanced trade trade balance. And so that that's a noble goal, but it's not clear whether a government can really uh, achieve yeah, that. But let me let me break in Eric because there's is there there's no evidence that having a trade balance one way or the other necessarily affects whether your economy is doing well or the people in your country are actually living well. Well, no, I, I agree with right? you, yeah. And, you know, you know, Barry Eichengreen would argue that the exorbitant privilege is if you're the world's reserve currency, and the U.S. certainly is, then you almost, by definition, run right. a trade deficit. And so I think it will be hard to eliminate. And simultaneously, the White House wants more business investment and fiscal stimulus. And, of course, that means less aggregate national savings. And, of course, you need to be a national net saver if you're going to run a, a current account surplus. So I'm not sure they'll be able to achieve that. That worries me a bit as well. Well, I was going to ask you about Ontario and the linkages in the Ontario economy with the United States, because if you stand at the Ambassador Bridge, you know, or the Blue Water Bridge that they're building, I mean, it's basically a unified economy. It really is, yeah, massively so. That's right. Uh, and I can say from the Canadian perspective that uh, you know, three quarters of, of Canadian exports go to the U.S. And gosh, it represents at least a quarter of, of Canadian GDP. So huge on that side, not quite as big on the U.S. side, just because the U.S. economy is so much bigger. But th- these are hugely integrated. There would be massive consequences both for the border states in the U.S. and also for Ontario in particular, but some of the other manufacturing and exporting hubs as well. So it's, it's a big deal for all of us. It's a middling-sized deal, I think, for all of you right. we're slightly reassured that right. behind the, the scenes one hears that trump isn't focused on canada but canada's getting caught up in this nevertheless thanks very much eric lasell chief economist rbc global asset management joining us from toronto thanks for listening to the bloomberg pnl podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at apple podcasts soundcloud or whatever podcast platform you prefer i'm pim fox i'm on twitter at pim fox I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.